Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two quans. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, we get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So, uh, quick intros. First, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and Grand Poobad Gauntlet. Sorry, I was about to say Robert's intro. I just miss him so much. But we've got we've got a wonderful guest here today. Uh, we've got Kyle Samani, the scion of Solana. And then we've got myself. I'm a Steve, the head hat man at Dragonfly. Um, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. See chopping for disclosures. By the way, is Kyle our first repeat guest? I think actually, yeah, he has yeah. the yeah. great honor of being our first repeat guest. I, I am honored. This is my second time on the show. I think last time y'all were in Austin for uh, consensus, consensus last right, year. Yeah, right. you're, you're wow, just, the world has changed so much since the world then. Has it, it has gotten just basically uniformly worse. Uh, <laughs> yes. and I, think, I remember at that time actually, I saw I saw that episode in preparation for this, and we were talking about how bad things had gotten. <laughs> and, and this was like summer last year. Yeah, well, this yeah, is, yeah. I think, right after Luna. So that's right. That's yeah, we right. were like, wow, this is pretty bad. Yeah, a 60, like, a 60 billion dollar asset turned to zero in 48 hours. I know, but it's like, don't, don't you think that things are going to get better? And you were like, I actually think that it's going to get a lot better. And all these guys <laughs> talking about how macro is going to be shit. It's like they don't know what they're talking about. I'm an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good characteristic. It's been kind of a crazy week. So we're all here for ETH Denver. And um, most of us just got in. The conference is just kicking off now. But we've heard that there are a shitload of people here. So 25,000? I've heard 25,000. I've, 25, I've heard a bunch of numbers. I don't know what, if anything is verified yet because, like, the main event is starting tomorrow. And so I think a lot of people are coming in. Tonight. Yeah, tonight and then tomorrow as well for Friday and the main event. Um, you, got, you've got, you guys haven't done anything yet. But I know Tarun. Really I, yeah, I was here since Monday. I, I was at a, a Axelar conference with you. The and then. And then there's a bunch of zero knowledge proof uh, conferences. The interesting thing about going to these conferences that get so big is that the side events become their own sort of mini conferences. And like yeah. there are people who only came for the side events who like came Monday through Thursday and like are leaving before the main conference. So that makes sense. I mean, the main event now is more like consensus where it's it's sort of more non-developers than developers. I mean, it's so big now you just kind of almost don't want to go to the main thing and just like hang out at all the side stuff. I think, yeah, the... U.S. Ethereum conferences, I personally don't like that much because they're they're not really that technical or developer focused. There's a lot more like I would call it pseudo ESG propaganda, uh, <laughs> like like because there's like tons of the like regenerative like finance type of oh, stuff. Refi, like, refi, there's tons refi. of talks. On, I love you those go, pitches. If you go look at the talks, there's tons of stuff like that, and yeah. like way less like how do we use their knowledge proofs in no, Ethereum. It's, it's true. It's, there's an event called Shelling Point that Gitcoin is putting on, and half of the talks. I was like, I don't, I don't actually know what this talk is about. <laughs> like, it's so, it's just like very. I mean, not to shit on anyone. I don't, I don't actually know what what they're talking about there. But it's very uh, difficult to understand. Mm. It, it, it's just about. like different than like the technical Ethereum conferences, yes. like DevCon or DevConnect, which are, are 
are really focused on like actual new stuff they're adding to the network. Completely, completely. Well, okay, so one of the big uh, things that was in advance of ETH Denver was this big announcement by Coinbase that they are launching a new L2 called Base. And so we don't have a ton of details right now, but basically the high level of Base is that it's built on the Optimism stack, so it's an optimistic rollup. Uh, they are not going to have a token, so don't go out trying to buy Base token. Apparently there was. There was. There were. Yeah, a, base, a token called Base. Um, but uh, they've already got a bunch of partnerships and you know a bunch of plans for a big rollout. Uh, but right now we don't have, I think it's pretty scant on details, but there was an interesting point around the um, the monetization is that in the initial blog post, they claimed that there was going to be 20% of the fees that the um, the, the protocol, or the, I guess the uh, coordinator uh, uh, accrues are going to go toward optimism, uh, like OP token. And public goods. And yeah, public, public goods, public goods funding, goods funding for, for optimism. And then they removed that. And just made a, I think it's like just a generic. Some percentage. Some percentage. Yeah. Some percentage <laughs> is going to go through the unspecified. The real question is like, which department at Coinbase uh, authorized writing 20% and which <laughs> yeah. one authorized the removal? <laughs> yeah, it's like the finance yeah. department at the end and like the the recruiting department at the beginning. <laughs> very very uh, interesting, interesting. But so right now, I mean, a lot of people are excited about this. I don't know how to feel about it, to be honest, because I think Coinbase, so far, they have a very mixed record of launching these things. And you... You have to assume that there's some half-heartedness in Coinbase for doing this, right? Like they're doing it. They're not going to tokenize it. They are kind of, um, they're, they're, they're doing the full court press. It reminds me a lot of what happened with the Coinbase NFT exchange, mm. which is there's a lot of sound and fury. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, let's see the follow through. How, how are you guys feeling about base? I think um, it really, I feel similarly like, Coinbase gives me big clown car stuck in a gold mine, gold mine vibes, you know, um, in that there, there is, is that a saying? Is that a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg is that Zuck describes Twitter. Twitter. Um, oh, oh I, I didn't catch this. Um, this is a while ago, but okay. there are pockets of talent at Coinbase of like crypto people who get crypto stuff and execute well. And you see those shine through in some of their products. Like Coinbase wallet is amazing. The NPC stuff is super cool. Um, the tokenized Coinbase ETH stuff, the stake D stuff, super cool. Base seems super cool and well executed, but it's kind of in the minority, right? Like most people are, you know, coming from big tech, fintech, like they just don't really get crypto and therefore like the product output is not, uh, you know, really impressive or like, you know, getting, getting any real traction. Yeah, it's a difficult time too, because Gensler is on the warpath. I mean, I guess not having a token makes it simpler. Yeah. Not under his jurisdiction, but still. Well, I think, uh, you know, I saw a very, maybe somewhat politically incorrect tweet about um base which was uh it's binance smart chain for white people and uh and it, it it's wow. and so so to give some context binance smart chain is a chain actually very similar to to coinbase in the sense of it you know have a smaller set of validators you can't just like join and validate the chain um and it uh it, it's sort of where a lot of retail users in china and asia go to first have their first experience with actually using a wallet uh and it's it's very popular it's like the most popular blockchain actually by transaction volume um but the interesting thing is i guess the u.s doesn't really have that experience and so people are saying basically very unlike coinbase right because usually they don't like exchange tokens and exchange chains are very common thing, right Huobi has Huobi chain okx is okay whatever whatever chain um this is this is just like a trope that since Binance Smart Chain, almost every single exchange launched its own blockchain. And obviously, none of them are nearly as successful as Binance Smart Chain. But Coinbase always 
felt very aloof from like the standard kind of global exchange playbook. Um, and even in doing this, right, like they are kind of, sh sort of showing they're better because there's no token. And in almost all of these cases, there's a token and the token is the native token of that blockchain. And, the, you know, there's this whole kind of like, well, it's got utility because using a layer one, it's not just like an exchange token anymore. Well, I think the interesting thing is the the app chain on Ethereum thesis. So like, you know, if you go back to the last few years, Cosmos was always the place where people were like, people will build special purpose blockchains for particular applications. And arguably, we've seen the Ethereum rollups like Optimism, which Base is using, or Arbitrum with Nova, start to build these like SDKs. Actually, I got yelled at from one of the Optimism people for calling in SDK. I'm supposed to call it the uh, stack. The OP stack. stack. OP stack. The stack. Thank you. Um, for building your special purpose blockchain. So one interesting fact about this is Coinbase may be the first of the, um, you know, in the last bear market, there was a lot of like private blockchain, whatever stuff. And I kind of think the this time it's the private roll up, uh, which will be the kind of like industrial narrative. I, I mean, the thing you always have to wonder whenever a existing business launches a new a new business line is like, okay, like what's their motivation? How are they going to make money? Let's use the NFT exchange, as you alluded to. Like, well, clearly they were going to make money on transaction fees, which mapped to their existing model. Turns out NFTs in particular trade much better non-custodially than custodially for, for some uh, idiosyncratic reasons there. Um, the question I wonder with base is like, you know, Binance launched BSC like largely because they, they could put a token in it and like they obviously own a bunch of the token and, and they could kind of feed it into, into the empire. This doesn't really have a token. And so monetization is less clear. Um, not that there, there can't be some monetization lines and the obvious ones are like, you know, you could have swaps on there and you could take a, a cut, you could have borrow lend stuff and like, you could have basically Coinbase be an, an affiliate type of thing, like feeding these protocols and take a cut of that stuff. If, if that's what they're doing. And I don't, I don't know if that's what they're doing, but that's kind of the most sensible thing. Um, what's interesting about it is it's potentially a clever way to get around regulatory stuff where the Coinbase can slowly try and move its revenue from CFI to DeFi without actually taking on the risk of running a DeFi thing. That's kind of my current operating theory. Uh, it's loose. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm the, not the, saying the, this is a great theory. The sequencer generates fees, too. Yeah. And so the sequencer fees, I think, are actually... So for OP and Arbitrum, they're in the 20 to 50 million a year range. And you have to imagine that base will so have that, higher that's gas. That's gas fees? They're, yeah. They're, okay. So yeah. People are paying for priority. But they're, but they're passing that through, right? Like, that's being paid no, no. for gas on layer one. This is profit, though, but there's no. arbitrage, right? Like, you aren't paying that same amount to actually no, settle the proofs. this stuff? Uh, they're actually they're taking yeah, yeah there's actually a really good Dune they're just taking it, it to their inks and paying all their employees with it i don't know where it's going i don't know where there, it's there going. Is a delta there's a wallet what people are paying the sequencer <laughs> oh, really? and what they are paying to settle the proofs on chain that's yeah. surprising no no there there is clearly a business model for the sequencers there is and, there and, is there is but it, like i would assume that they'd be subsidizing it right now well, and, and, taking the bigger margin. and sorry, if, if it's if if the fees are that much in excess of the data cost on L1, then presumably this means people are bidding up that block space for ARBs and whatever else, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say where that volume is coming from, right? It's like, okay, are people trying to do optimism quests? Do they really want some OP punks, whatever? I don't know what the answer is going to be for for base. I have talked to a few teams that actually are building on base and they're excited about it. And their main argument is that they're trying to target um, mass market retail people and the Coinbase connectivity with Base is really appealing to them, whereas super easy on and off ramp bridging, USDC. So who, is it is it DeFi? Is it gaming? Like who who are you talking to who's building on Base? Some consumery kind of stuff, social stuff, some DeFi kind of stuff. Um, I haven't talked to many NFT uh, people building on it, but have you people never moved know. to Base or is it people? No, I mean it's, like, it's still on testnet. It's like on testnet. It's not no, no, no. I mean, I mean, are people saying like I was going to build on Polygon, but now I'm going to build on Base, or is this like you know blank slate? Mix of both. Um, some are 
this is home base. Okay. Home base. Um, some are, you know, it's going to be one of many deployments, which is less commitment because it's EVM. But. So part of, a meme I've heard frequently is like, oh my God, it's going to be like better tied in the Coinbase and like therefore bring in more users. That, that, that seems to be a prevailing meme here. The thing that I wonder is like mechanically what makes that true? Like, I'm not a super active Coinbase wallet user, but like you go on there now and it's like you have Arbitrum, you have Optimism, you have ETH L1, you have Polygon, you have Solana. Like, those are already there, and I, presumably they're not going to remove those options. Although that would be a very interesting strategic play if they remove those <laughs> options. Let's <laughs> let's assume finance move. Let's, let's not, yeah. right. Let's assume for now they're not <laughs> going to do that. Um, so like and like most of these things are going to be EVM copies from these other places onto base. So like, why is the experience better? Like you know, and and so that that's the thing I wonder is like there's nothing fundamental about the base tech so stack. Here's that, the other thing about base, right? So if you yeah. remember in the early days of Binance Smart Chain, there was a lot of drama around Binance playing policeman. Mm. Well, basically, Binance right, would right, like right. basically shut off the bridge for people who are doing rug pulls, people who are doing hacks, stuff like that, right? Um, and Binance could do that because effectively, you know, there was like sort of semi-centralized, you know, I don't know what you want to call it now, but it was much more centralized back then than it is today. Um, for base, right, like right now we don't have any kind of decentralized technology for sequencers, right? Sequencer is just some guy running a server. And that server is presumably going to be run by Coinbase, right? Um, yeah. So Coinbase... There is, I, I can't imagine a legal theory under which their compliance team would not consider themselves liable for criminal activity taking place on base that's trying to cash out. So I have to imagine that the chain is going to have to be policed in some way in the way that early Binance Smart Chain was. And that might be the thing that gets them to say like, hey, let's maybe spin this out. Let's maybe like find some way to get this thing arm's length from Coinbase itself. I mean, arguably, right, all the roll-ups do want to get to a decentralized sequencer and have... Yeah, but how long proofs. is that going to take, right? I mean, Optimus doesn't even have fraud proofs. How long is does it take for the SEC to understand what a roll-up <laughs> Those are I, the two, actually, two, two I, competing I don't think that's the right times. question. Yeah. I, no, I, no, 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 no I, I don't think that's the question. I mean, the question is, like, what will Coinbase's lawyers approve, given you have, you know, billions of dollars of, of, of equity value here? And I think that's a very different question. Yeah, and like if, if there was if there was five guys in a garage, it's like, hey, you, it's whatever you take the risk. But like, this is a real business with real shareholders and yeah. stuff. Coinbase keeps confusing me on the on the regulatory front. I mean, part of it is the listings that they that they choose, right? It's like, okay, this is po- you mean podocall? You've never used yeah. podocall? <laughs> <laughs> some of those, some of those. Um, and then you know, with like the the um, staked ETH product, um, you know, they're using MEV Boost, and so. They're basically selling off reordering rights to people and you know, sending that profit and profiting from it. And so it's like, okay, that's kind of suspicious. I didn't really think they would actually do something like that. So I don't know where they sort of draw the line because I, I agree with you. Like, or, you know, it does seem like they would be liable sort of for policing the chain. I mean, even if they are not. That would imply it must be KYC. I mean, just, like just the money, the money transmitter stuff. I mean, that, that's like. No, no, no. I mean, they're not going to be money transmitters just because they're running an layer two. But, but they're the only. I mean, yeah, it's the interesting. Def- control technically, technically, if they never submit the fraud proof, <laughs> they ever they never accept the fraud. They proof. Accept, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Like there, there is it's, it's some it's very in, yeah, weird, yeah, yeah. weird logic that can yeah. go into this. The separation of of sequencing for normal transactions versus fraud proofs to bail yourself out, while those two things yeah, are technically yeah, yeah. separated in an optimistic roll up. I, I I didn't think about that as I made the comment originally, <laughs> yeah, but like yeah, you right. kind of assume they're naturally <laughs> bundled. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I mean, okay, this is all a bit of theory craft. We'll have to see what happens when it actually comes out. But my guess is that when this thing comes out, see, here's the problem, right? Like, if you're mad at Binance because you got rug pulled on Binance Smart Chain, like the most you can do is like yell on Twitter, right? Whereas if you're mad at Coinbase because you got rug pulled on, on base, you can sue them. Yeah, and they are just going to get 
inundated with lawsuits if you start to see just like Ponzi schemes and rug pulls and all sorts of stuff. And my guess is that's going to be the activation energy that gets them to try to spin this thing out. Like, okay. I don't think they'll kill it, but I do think that they were going to try to make it arm's length and say, look, we take no liability. And the cleanest way to do that is just have it be a separate. So, so do you think because the OP token exists, you know, if they needed a token incentivization for, say, multi-sequencer, that they would just use OP? Or do you think they would actually try to eventually have base? It's hard base. I, I would guess it's based on success, right? Like if, if base is really working well, then I can imagine op, like optimism itself, like the optimism collective, is that what it's called? The governance group? Mm-hmm. Basically deciding like, hey, base is no longer, it's, it's not viable for base to be subsidized by Coinbase. So we need to step in and kind of create the economics that makes this thing long-term viable. Um, as long as we have that Coinbase distribution engine, it's worth doing, right? Like this might even supersede optimism itself. But what is this Coinbase distribution engine? I go back to my point I made a couple minutes ago. It's like, you, you feel on ramps the same. Like you have a list of networks to choose from. They're all EVM. Like these redeploy the contract. Like what's different here? I mean, what's, what's the difference with Binance Smart Chain, right? Like they find all these different ways to partner with them and to co-market and to push thing people onto the chain. But like, you know, Binance Smart Chain, most people but buy Ethereum. They also, they also like, early confirm your transactions. They do all sorts of stuff to make the UX. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. BSC, BSC from the Binance interface. Oh, 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 I see. You know, they, they, they have like hosted wallets, which is basically the same as them custodying it. But like right. they, they the, there is all this UX stuff true, that true, I would true. definitely yeah, not underweight. I was going to you don't, yeah, you don't have to stretch the imagination that far to think of how they can sort of add preferential treatment for it, right? Even like USDC, right. like isn't on Arbitrum and like there's, you know, some sort of things they can give this preference for or like have this sort of early confirmation kind of stuff. Push it more in like Coinbase wallet. So I can see that. Um, I can see that. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, so um, moving away from Coinbase, there was some more news this week about the uh, <laughs> the late exchange FTX. So um, we learned recently that Nishad, who was one of the, what was he, VP of Eng? Yeah. VP of Eng at FTX, uh, he just got charged and he pleaded guilty. Um, he pleaded guilty to six counts, including wire fraud, uh, commodities and securities fraud, money laundering, unlawful political donations. There was one interesting tidbit. So at this point, basically the entire inner circle of Sam has pleaded guilty to something or other. And um, the, the the interesting thing that we saw in the SEC, I think it was the SEC complaint against um, against Ashad was that, uh, so there's a lot of stuff of like, oh, you should have known that thing was fraudulent and that Alameda, blah, blah, blah. We kind of know the story. But the one really interesting element was that apparently in 2021, FTX had a revenue goal of hitting a billion dollars. And they were supposedly $50 million short of that revenue goal. And so Sam instructed Nishad to transfer money from Alameda to FTX and book it as revenue. And so they sort of backported some accounting instructions and kind of fed that to their auditor to make them think that they had hit this revenue number of a billion dollars or whatever it was, um, which to me is actually a, a very surprisingly like kind of smoking gun. Yeah, they knew it all along. Like there wasn't just like a, a moment of, of uh, desperation. It was like, okay, this was like very willful from even 2021 before any of the but to be fair that's, that that does seem just like very vanilla accounting fraud relative to some of the other it does that just sounds like a normal accounting fraud case that you would just which is like, kind of it's kind of hardening to be like oh yeah anybody can understand what they did like, <laughs> yeah. there's not a complicated explanation well yeah because the other one is like they, they the trap door thing for for borrowing is like way more complicated this is just like hey we just sent 50 million bucks <laughs> 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 that's right yeah yeah it's nice to have a simple story about accounting fraud every once in a while and Crypto. Obviously, you were in the outer circle of FTX. Uh, what's your take seeing all of the charges that are now being brought to FTX and everything we're learning about how the inner circle of FTX was operating? 
Uh, yes, Multicoin was an investor in both FTX US and FTX.com. Um, I can't say a lot. Uh, I don't really know anything more than y'all. We, we got information in the press, same as everyone else. Uh, it's just sad and frustrating. I mean, mostly like at this point, it's pretty clear like it was a fraudulent scheme. Mm-hmm. When exactly the fraud started, unclear. It seems to be the beginning or close to the beginning, but I, I, I'm not sure I have definitive proof to make that, that claim. But certainly stuff like this makes it seem like it was earlier rather than later. Um, like I just want people to get their money back and be made as whole as, as possible. Oh yeah, actually we did, well Galois, who oh, fun, yeah, yeah. We, we I guess we didn't mention them. No, we didn't. So yeah, Galois, know, Kevin. Um, he was also on the show. Kevin, Kevin, Joe. Uh, he was uh, infamous. Actually, we brought him on right after Terra Collapse because he was one of the few people who was kind of. I think he was publicly. actively short. He was actively short Terra, and he was, yeah. he was sort of calling out the 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 impending failure of Terra. Um, he had uh, you know he was an active trader. Uh, I think market neutral strategy, and he had something like half of his fund on FTX. Uh, and so he he recently ended up liquidating his fund. Um, very unfortunate to see because he was well regarded as being a very early and active fund manager in crypto. Um, so, you know, it's 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 been it's been a really rough year for a lot of fund managers uh, because, of course, everybody assumed that FTX was above board, you know, regardless of whatever misgivings you might have had about Sam or his strategy or Solana or whatever. Um, a lot of good people got hit from what happened with FTX. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. I know a few other funds. I, I won't name them because I'm not sure they've publicly said they're shutting down. But yeah, I know a few other funds that unfortunately have gotten hit bad too. I think, uh, I mean, there's obviously been like a lot of articles written about, you know, changing, you know, due diligence practices and um, you know, investment practices at VCs in FTX and not in FTX and everyone's sort of reevaluating themselves. I guess like at Multicoin, how do you guys think about what's next, I guess, in terms of investing in CFI, investing in early stage companies, like how are you guys sort of thinking about um, lessons? Yeah, we have have changed a lot of our operational processes around collateral management on exchanges um, to tighten tighten that up just so that if anything does happen again in the future, we'll hopefully have less less collateral there. In terms of underwriting, it's tricky. I mean, we've obviously gone back and re-looked at all of our own underwriting stuff. And as best we can tell, everything we were shown as of we when I said in I think August of twenty one, so uh, maybe July of twenty one, something like that. And as best we can tell, everything we looked at was accurate as of the time. But again, like who knows what we're going to find out still still in the future. Um, the most interesting thing we actually were very concerned about was the Alameda relationship, obviously. Um, and actually, they were very forthcoming in the data room. They presented this without even asking. Uh, Alameda's percentage of volume over time. Uh, and for the first like 15, 16 months, it was a flat line at 49% because they were basically one half of every trade was, was Alameda. And then starting around like, I don't know, mid 2020 or something, that started to, de- to decrease very, very, very gently. And by, you know, mid to late 2021, uh, it was like mm, 7% or 6% or something like that. Hmm. And we were like, okay, how do we vet this? And we concluded the best way to vet it was to call all the other market makers, ask them, hey, what, what percentage of volume do you believe you represent? So we called like seven rate market makers. They gave us what their rough estimations were. And we were like, okay, this actually matches up against, mm. against the chart Alameda is, is showing. And that, that to us was like one of the best indications of, okay, this, this, everything we're looking at makes sense. That was the thing to look at. I don't think at that time Alameda had large loans from FTX. In fact, it may not have had any loans from FTX at that time. Um, but that, that admittedly obviously came up, came up later. But that was the big thing we looked at. And so, you know, affiliated party transactions, it's, it, I mean, you never want it. It's never good. We passed on FTT seed round because of the affiliation, like explicitly back in April 2019. 
Uh, and so it's just, it's weird how these things come about, but like, you know, so, some things like you can do all the DD you want and then if business practices change after the fact, like what, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, since the collapse of FTX, like diligence standards across the industry have gone up and just the expectations among entrepreneurs, about what to expect when receiving investment have changed. So, you know, before FTX, I mean, especially before the summer when, you know, when three arrows collapsed and the market really started taking a turn. Um, it was very common that around would just be like, hey, this is my data room, which is like a deck and then like, you know, kind of chicken scratch balance sheet. And then it's like, yeah, in or out, you know, you got two days and I've already got a term sheet and I've got 20 other term sheets lined up. And now it's a very, very different environment. And um, thankfully, that means one rounds are slower, they're more meticulous and more thoughtful. And it also means that entrepreneurs understand, hey, there's a diligence process that needs to take place, especially when you're writing a, a meaningful check, especially post seed. Right. So, I mean, there was actually, I remember right after FTX, uh, Sequoia, which wrote like, I think they wrote like 300 million into FTX. Uh, they had this, uh, there, was this, there was this article that they quoted them saying that we are going to start demanding audits for our seed investments. <laughs> Big four yes, audits I for our seed investments. That, I yeah, exactly. That, I and I was like, okay, that is a little bit that, of an overreaction. Won't that, won't that just like burn through their runway? Yeah. <laughs> I the feel Sequoia's like, runway? No, no, no. The company. Oh, the co- no, no. I think the Sequoia would pay for it. There's no way they would demand that a seed stage company pay for that. The, 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 the article was quite ambiguous about that. That was okay. why I was like, I was like, I didn't know who's actually paying in that. I, 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 can't I don't actually cash is not the problem. It's the entrepreneur's time. I mean, in, in yeah, yeah, five, sure, ten sure. person companies, like the yeah. CEO, in these CEOs, none of them know how to go through a big four audit. Like, so oh, that's right. That's right. And what is that audit? You know, there's just like four mm-hmm. dudes and like some money. Yeah. So. We have to depreciate the laptop every second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there, there was, you know, especially after FTX, there was this sort of moment of overreaction. Um, and obviously Sequoia took a big hit from, you know, reputationally, this was like, you know, one of their biggest kind of face losing moments was, was the collapse of FTX. Well, the other thing is growth and growth investments like have also collapsed partially. I mean, FTX was more like the cherry on top, but there was already this kind of like tech growth stage investment, SaaS investment, stuff like that had already like really decayed through 2022. And like, I think FTX was kind of like the pin of like there's no growth investing right now basically yeah other than sort of like vulture um kind of activist type of stuff so it's interesting to see that i I mean i'm actually more curious what the vulture and activist landscape in crypto will look like because i actually feel like it's going to be really growing this year and there's going to be all sorts of interesting weird mna transactions that you know one would never have thought would have existed six months ago how do you do MA with tokens? There was a few attempts at this. There was the Ferrari. There was a couple of others. I don't even recall. As far as I can tell, none of them have, have really worked. There was New Cypher Keep, I believe, was another one. Uh, that I, one is easier, though, because they what they did was they, because they're both separate chains, they just merged their node clients and then uh, merged the validation. Yeah, I, so I think easy. it's much, <laughs> well, no, no, it's much easier than the merging two DAOs because the two DAOs have to like vote on the like okay. economic okay. substance changes, which are like, much more contentious versus true, true, true. versus like the node software upgrades actually more like mm. you just fair. pick a you pick a conversion price and then you accept one chain. I, I wrote a blog post in twenty. There was a meme about like crypto M and A in twenty seventeen. Oh, I remember this as, blog as post. we as we as this is right as we started Multicoin. And I was like, dude, without without drag along rights, like I don't know how you do M and A. And like I haven't read that post in four years, but like I, I think directionally I got most of it right. Like it, it seems very difficult. To, for token teams now, for non-token teams, there definitely was going to be some M and A, but like for token teams, it, I'm I'm skeptical. Yeah. I, th- I think they just I think the teams give up and go home. They what what appears to be is as long as you don't do it, 
what appears to be the, the the norm is that as long as you don't act in bad faith, but like, hey, the thing's not working, and you give up and go home, then you can go and go home, and then you tr- launch a new thing, and like things seem to generally be okay. I'm not saying that's not legal advice or financial advice, but like that's <laughs> been my that, that's been my observation of yeah. crypto. Well, the interesting thing is actually in the Galois case, um, the sort of like third tier, fourth tier investment bank, BTIG, was apparently the one that's like handling the claims. And so I think there's actually this interesting thing of like, you know, investment banks that are not like too close to the Fed, like they're kind of like the fifth tier, not very good uh, investment. They seem to be really, really active in some of the CFI stuff right now. Hmm. And so that's where I think, I'm not necessarily saying protocol m a is going to happen but it does feel like you know there's gonna yeah, be a lot I think, of i think there's stuff like still that. a lot of blood left to bleed for some of the companies that are not viable anymore because the reality is people raised so much money last year and in, in 2021 as well so i think for a lot of these companies that their revenues have collapsed but they still have enough runway to keep going for like six months maybe 12 months i mean the craziest version of this is paxos right because most of their revenue came from busd right, that's right. and now it's that's gone it's not gone no, no no it's not gone it's not gone they can't they can't mint more but they don't have to force uh, redeem everything uh, that's right? true that's so true, the, true. the new york uh, uh, nydfs but they only made money on create redeem fees right not they have the float yeah they're oh, making money yeah, on the float yeah, 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 yeah no, no, they yeah, make money yeah, on the float so like i think it's shrunk like 30 percent. it's like 20 percent. 20 percent. okay so it's shrunk like 20 to 30 percent um, but it's still a big pile of money. But what do you do if you're Paxos? Like half of what Paxos was actually doing earlier was doing stable coins for like the PayPal, Revolut, whatever, right? Like yeah, they announced yeah. all, all these types. They've all gone, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting that they actually have like this huge amount of cash, but like it's very unclear what to do. And I guarantee you there will be some activism over that. I mean, look, BUSD was like 90% of their revenue. And with that collapsing, I mean, they've indicated, so we still don't have any indication of what the lawsuit is that the SEC has filed against Paxos for BUSD. The the leak is that it's a security and that's why they're suing them. We don't actually know. Um, But once we see that case, I mean, Paxos has already said in the press that they're going to fight, which no surprise, it's like the whole business. So of course they're going to fight. But the the NYDFS did not say shut down uh, BUSD. They just said stop minting it until you fix this other stuff, which I guess like, I don't know what the other stuff is because the, all of the claims about Binance funny accounting was like a year ago or something. Um, so this is all retroactive that people are finding that, hey, this thing was unbacked at certain points. Uh, but maybe it's like there's certain protections we want you to put into place or like certain, you know, Well, Well, I, I just could imagine that there's activist investors who are like Paxos should actually just return the capital from their stream and then go out of business. I think they still make good revenue though, just with like the float. For sure, for sure. But I this looks like one of these like classic uh, – kind of like in public market active inv- activist investment type of place where like there's no growth in the company mm-hmm. but they have a ton of assets on the balance sheet and investors try to go break it up or get it to to sell and I, and right. to me they seem to be the most interesting like game theory for these like PE people I, I know I know it's not a fun topic but yeah. I, 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 I for some reason I like fun for you apparently I, yeah. I had like I had a dream about it the other day you had a dream about Paxos about about, about like like the, the, this this breaking I thought, up I thought you dream about ZK or maybe yeah I would have about like, but not about options. not about yeah. Yeah. you know sometimes you got you got to schedule okay okay got it. so you don't you don't dream in math papers you dream in like PE takeovers <laughs> got it okay interesting everyone the, the real the real Tarun that's yeah I see I see but I'm just saying like things like that yeah I'm really expecting to see some some crazy okay, stuff. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's go back to your bread and butters. Let's talk about Solana. So um, a mainstay on the show, we, we love doing shows around Solana downtime. 
We actually did not plan this, but it just so happened that Solana went down. The Solana had a 20-hour outage. Uh, they claim that they still do not know the root cause of the of the outage, but it was around the time of a protocol upgrade. Um, Anatoly Rader wrote, wrote a blog post saying that they were going to have some renewed uh, engineering practices around upgrades and and te- you know better testing and having some kind of uh, a red team to uh, you know investigate the stability of protocol upgrades and stuff like that. Um, but there was just a lot of people kind of shouting and being mad that Solana was down. Um, Kyle, you're obviously the closest to Solana. What's your take on the latest bout of Solana downtime? Uh, it's it's definitely frustrating. I mean, things were seem to have been going very well, and just like it feels like an unforced error. It, it, it was probably due to the one one four upgrade. Uh, so that, I think I think that's the primary source of frustration. Is it felt like an unforced error? Um, you, you know, Solana Labs since since the beginning, it's been like very clear, like ship fast, move as quickly as possible. And like ship an MVP that like, I mean, what they shipped in March 2020 was like barely functional at all. And like they've known there's just been huge amounts of memory leaks and like consistency stuff and consensus. I mean, they've, they've known like they've had a huge laundry list of stuff to work through. And it seems like they basically worked their way through that that core list. Um, and so like, you know, Anatoly put, put out a blog post, I think a day or two ago saying, hey, like we've worked through our laundry list. Like we believe the core system is stable. For, the, for this point forward, we need to like reprioritize engineering efforts around stability as opposed to speed. Um, I don't know if that that claim is valid or not. Time will tell. Um, but but you know, like it, it seems like to have been a, a a moment in time to shift how you think about resource values in the in the ecosystem. Um, the values clearly were one thing before, and I think these I think this was kind of like the demarcation point for those values changing. Um, so hopefully that's a sign of, of the thing system maturing and, and things getting better, but obviously TBD with any weird technical stuff, you never know. So what's your, what's your read on the vibe in Solana land? Because, you know, after FTX, there was kind of this trough of disillusionment, price collapse, and then it rebounded really dramatically in January. And now it's sitting at like $23, $24. So it's sitting actually at a higher than it was when FTX collapsed. Um, what's, what's your sense of like the community, the spirit, like, how's it feeling internally? Um, I, I I was never really worried that like in the wake of the FTX collapse that, that things would fall apart. I know a lot of people were like fighting pretty hard and, and pretty concerned. I was never worried about that. Um, today, I think there's a, a I think it was a real galvanizing moment FTX for for the community, and so those people continue to, to build and operate. Um, I think this is mostly just like uh, I think the, the actually primary impact of, of this recent outage is less on the community, more on Solana Labs around engineering and release processes. Um, and I Anatoly's made some public commitments to change. I think those will continue to, to evolve. So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic there. Um, in terms of like everything else, I think nothing else has really changed in the last 48 hours. Um, if you were wanting to build some sort of high performance DEX thing, like relative to a week ago, I don't think that the environment of your options of where to build has, has really changed in a meaningful way. And so I think those people will do what they're doing. And for most people building apps, I think that their, their values and what they're looking for in a chain, like, the systems are different. EVM versus Solana is different enough that, like, I don't think the calculus is really changing for for most people. So I actually, I I would actually disagree a little bit. There's so there's a lot of sort of Solana devs, like longtime Solana devs. I think that this incident fragmented, and you could see the sentiment shift where there were certain developers who were really like, you know, we need to, you know, because the Solana Foundation had a little bit of a gaffe and said the following statement, which then got. Uh, caused the schism, which is like Solana pri- uh, prioritizes safety over liveness and Ethereum prioritizes liveness over safety, which is sort of an untrue statement. Uh, but you could see a lot of developers galvanized by this statement. You can definitely see the people who are working on the DEXs, like the 
the um, like Phoenix and OpenBook and stuff. They took and and like Jito, who's doing MEV stuff. They took a lot of the brunt of having to to restart things and on the app layer. Uh, and you could definitely see they were quite angry compared to say like the NFT side of Solana, which is like we didn't really care. Which, which I, I thought that was interesting. There's clearly this developer schism, at least sen- in sentiment of reaction to this. Outage. I mean, it, it, if you're if you're just measuring by developer weight, there's a lot more developers on the DeFi side than on the NFT side, but there are a lot more users on the NFT side than on the DeFi side, right? So I could see that on Solana, I can imagine that like a lot of developers are pissed, but a lot of the activity on Solana driving day to day is more NFTs, gaming, which are just less dev heavy than the DeFi stuff. Yeah. I, I just would say, like, I, the, it definitely seems different than the f- prior outages where there was a lot more unison of, like, hey, we're just going to fix it and, like, rah, rah, tomorrow's a new day. This time seemed, like, very, you know, qualitatively different, distinct. I, I mean, there was there was a, some pretty objective sloppiness in the rollout, right? So from one, one from 13 to 14, there was, like, I think 300 PRs or something, whereas all the prior ones, there was max, like, 25 PRs. No so, so like it was an order of magnitude, just more changes in terms of just like the you know, files being changed or whatever. Um, and so, and so I think that that's a, and I think that was just like unforced error. Like they should have just staged that in, in smaller increments. Um, and then B, you know, like the days leading up to, to the upgrade, Anatoly was like, everyone, please upgrade. Everyone, please upgrade. And a couple of people were like, I don't know if I want to upgrade. And like, obviously with, with hindsight, like you look like an idiot. So, um, I think there's a lot of those fact patterns there, but like, th- this was definitely an unforced error. I think I think that's like the the the, the core of the problems uh, or, or the core of the frustration. The stuff that happened a year ago was just like, hey, the system had bugs in it, and like the bugs got exposed and it fell over. Um, this was just like clearly an unforced error, and, and that's frustrating. So, what are what are you excited about in Solana land for the next like you know, let's say uh, twelve months? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll touch on touch on two things. One I'll touch on is Hive Mapper, which I've, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been tweeting a lot about recently. Um, Hive Mapper is a new business model for gathering data to build a map. Um, so the idea is, you know, Google has the Google Street View cars that drive around. You've probably seen those. Those things are about half a million dollars. Uh, and Google has, I don't know, 500 of them, 1,000 of them. I don't know how many they have, but, but it's obviously some fixed number. Um, the idea with, with Hive Mapper is put a dash cam in, in your dashboard of your car and you drive around. And as you drive around, you can collect images and upload them and, and build a map that way. Um, there are... Uh, Hive Mapper started shipping their dash cams to consumers right around November 1st. It was right around Breakpoint was when they they did it. So it's been four months, three months since they launched. And there's about 10,000 total contributors who have contributed to the Hive Mapper app. They are, as of I checked a day or two ago, they were doing 30,000 unique kilometers per day, um, which for a sense of, of scale, there's about 60 million road kilometers in the world. So 30,000 in one day is five basis points of the entire world, which like is shockingly high. Um, given this thing is three months old. Um, so like that, that thing I feel like is taking off and, and working. Um, and so I'm super excited about Hive Mapper. All that stuff's on chain, the honey tokens, the NFTs representing each hexagon or whatever, how, how they do the mapping. That stuff's all flying around on chain and is pretty exciting. Um, the other one I'll highlight is Helium, which is migrating to Solana on March 27th. Um, Helium today, there's two, two major parts to it. There's the IoT network, which is, has is now kind of ramping up demand. That thing's growing 30-ish percent month over month, although from a low base. Uh, and then their 5G stuff, which today, basically, there's no demand, uh, but I think we'll turn on uh, shortly with Helium Mobile. Um, I'm just, like, excited about this vision of, like, telecoms are one of those hated companies in the world. Their capital structure is terrible. Their NPS scores are terrible. 
Um, it'll take a long time for Helium to be competitive in terms of coverage with the telecom. That's not even a question. But like it's one of the biggest visions in the world and they seem to have sparked the like in the same way you have the crazy libertarians and cryptographers get into Bitcoin in the early days. Like I think there's a sufficient mass of people who like buy into this vision of like, let's take a swing at telecoms and see if we can architect the network in, in a different way. And I think that critical mass is pretty large. Um, and so I'm optimistic we, we can get there. And Helium Mobile can be the first kind of flagship uh, on the demand side to get us there. So those are the two things that I'm excited about. They have nothing to do with speculation. They're, they're fairly removed from the rest of crypto markets, which is, is has positives and negatives to it. But like those two things in my mind are, are fairly uh, acyclical demand drivers. Yeah, so both very tied to real world activity and also both being yes. uh, you know, two applications that really take advantage of the scale of Solana and the and the, the you know the price point. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, Hive Mapper today, about roughly ten thousand people per day are, are hitting the chain in various ways. And with Helium, it should be a few hundred thousand per day uh, on the day of the migration. And, and both of those numbers can easily ten x respectively by the end of the year. That's great. Okay, well, there's one last story I want to get to, which is a bit more crypto native. Um, so there was a there was a hullabaloo about. Um, so there's an application called Oasis, which uh, spun out of MakerDAO uh, a little a little while back. And they have uh, they have a wallet that you can use to like interact with DeFi and do like recursive borrowing or whatever. They used to be a Dex. They used to be yes. a Dex back in the day, and then they sort of became this broader you know kind of tool chain. Um, so if you recall, so rewinding way back, uh, if you recall last year, Wormhole the bridge got hacked uh, for three hundred fifty million dollars, I believe. And the Wormhole attacker, uh, so you know, Jump kind of made Wormhole whole, kind of filled back in the the the, the hole that was missing. But there was a long investigation trying to figure out, okay, where did the hacked funds go? And it turned out. About um, 150 million of the funds were in a an Oasis um, contract, and so if you do it in ETH terms, it was basically all of the ETH. Okay, so all of the all of the it's ether, 120 thousand ETH is the headline number. All mm-hmm. of the ether had fallen into the hands of a single contract uh, owned by Oasis, and so Jump, you know, was sort of looking into the code of how this thing worked, and they realized that like, hey, um, there's some kind of you know admin function, and it turns out if you craft a message in just so you know such so perfect way. Uh, with the help of the admin key, you can actually basically like hotfix a way to take the money out of the contract. But you have to get the collaboration from the admin key. And so Jump approached, uh, or a, a subsidiary of Jump, whatever, approached uh, Oasis and they were like, hey, we found this thing. I we know that this is the court. guy. Well, no, no, no. We found this thing. We know that this is the guy. Uh, can you do this? And Jump, uh, and, and then Oasis was like, oh, we tried it. We can confirm that it works, but we're not willing to do this. Can you get a court order to make us do it? Right. And so they went to a high court in England and the high court was like, yeah, make them do it. And then they made them do it. And then Oasis basically conspired with Jump to, you know, contort to hack the hackers, to hack, Mm -hmm. to to hack back uh, and take the money out. And then Oasis was like, we now that we found this exploit, we're going to patch it to make sure that this can't happen again. Um, So very, very interesting reverse hack that has caused a a lot of conversations. Obviously, it's great that. Some of the money's gotten back and obviously jump, you know, it's, it's I'm glad that they're being made whole and the hackers being uh, losing some money, but very, very interesting precedent of collaborating with an admin key to force somebody to hack their own contract to amend some kind of violation. What, what are you guys thoughts on this situation? The only thing I have to say is I've never seen a Chris Black tweet with as much uh, as much <laughs> in terms of like interaction you know, now that shows you that. The number of people are right. Chris Bleck is a uh, online DeFi 
Gadfly. Troll. Say Gadfly. Gadfly. Yeah. I think he would. I think he would appreciate that. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, he he already d- dislikes the show apparently, based on some some tweets. I don't think he dislikes the show. I think he has a complicated relationship with the show. It is. I mean, this is always kind of the meme, right? Like DeFi isn't decentralized because there's a multi-sig that controls you know governance upgrades, blah blah blah. And at least some teams have on-chain you know token voting and stuff like that. But I feel like you very, very, very rarely see a multi-sig without a time lock which is how most of these other protocols do it, right? It's a, okay, sure, it's a multi-sig that controls governance, but there's a 48-hour delay when new upgrades uh, uh, get deployed. So if you don't like it, you know, you can Opt move out. your funds out. Yeah, exactly. This didn't have a time lock, um, apparently. And so they just made the change and like then it was live. And so uh, kind of ridiculous. Uh, I was talking with our general counsel about this, and uh, I like the way he framed it. Um, there's been a fun theory, longstanding meme in crypto of code is law, and it turns out uh, law is law, and code <laughs> is not law. <laughs> and uh, I've come, I've come to that sounds that like a good bumper sticker. Yeah. Law is law. Yeah. Law is law. <laughs> it's a hard one to penetrate, but you know when someone honks at you, you're like, okay, one ETH is one ETH, right? That's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, law, law is law. Wow, law is law. Okay, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's a good a note as any to end it on. Law is law. Uh, I feel like we learned something. Any big plans this week at, at Denver? Anything you're excited about? Um, I think there's an interesting thing where, you know, in the same way that um, currently the uh, AI, anyone who just appends .ai to their name will suddenly get a $100 million seed round, a little bit like, you know, Solana projects in 2021. Uh, there's a, a tiny version of that in ZK land where there's a lot of people oh, who are like, who are like, I'm just adding ZK zero knowledge proofs or, or, or MPC and like trying to like bolster their valuation. So I'm more interested in seeing all of the marketing shifts for me personally. That's like people who are doing something else. And all of a sudden that like they had sort of like this uh, change. I, I haven't seen too many AI things yet, thankfully, but you know, I've seen a number of them. I think the hype cycle du jour is either ZK or AI. And uh, especially, you know, some kind of LLM generative, something, 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 and kind of trying to force crypto and token into that somehow. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot. I, of I, I really want to just like take some of these pitches and then put them into chat GPT and be like, make an analogous <laughs> pitch and see how close it is. Have you all seen any things that pitch themselves as AI things that are other than like tap in the latent uh, GPU resources that like that you think crypto maps into them well and that crypto is not just being forced into them for the sake of it. I think the only thing I haven't really looked too deeply in this and I think it's probably bullshit is like people are pitching, as you made this is what you were alluding to, basically doing like decentralized training. Um, so it's like... Decentralized oh, training does not work. Yeah. Hey, 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 as, as a disclosure, that is, I think, the only AI investment that mm-hmm. I have uh, is, is a decentralized training thing. I think the more interesting thing about it is a lot of them are adapting fraud proofs from layer twos where you challenge the uh, – and this goes back to, like, the old TrueBit ideas, if, if you Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, people have actually – are basically taking the Layer 2 code for doing that stuff and actually using it to generate proofs so that, like, if I'm running a GPU, how do I know you're not just giving me random numbers? I'm actually giving you real trained weights. And they have these, like, challenge systems for that. So that stuff I actually think is going to be kind of interesting. It may not end up being useful for decentralized training, but the idea that fraud proofs can be used for other things is – is like something cool to, to see. It, it is interesting. I mean, okay, I, I think we should do a show on crypto and AI at some point. I think that's probably a good idea because there's so much being talked yes. about right now. And I feel like this is a fruitful area for conversation. I know that we have to go because Tarun has a speaking engagement. So he's always either early or 
But he's sorry. He's either always either late or he has to leave early. So <laughs> in the in the spirit of Trune, I guess let's Thanks. wrap up. Um, thank you, everybody. Another episode of the Chopping Block. We'll be back next week. Thanks for being repeat guest. Yeah. Great. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate <laughs> See, you that's the good part about not being Thanks. live. Thanks for, <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. See you, everyone. Bye, everyone.